interesting journey for us to take a journey with Abram of the Old Testament. We pick up the narrative on Abram in Genesis chapter 12, and we'll be there again this morning. As you turn there, I kind of want you to be aware um, that uh, we've had good feedback on the new bulletin design. And uh, one of the things we're trying to eliminate is 800 inserts. Um, we always have things going on here. And uh, you'll notice the sermon outline's in the bulletin, and some of you are like, whoa, what do I, I want it too. Um, that's, we knew that. That's why we have in the rack more sermon outlines. And there's also a map we hope you'll grab, because in the weeks ahead, we're going to reference that map. And it's kind of helpful to see what Abram's journey looks like. And some of it's very instructive of why he went where he did and where maybe he should have went where he didn't. And, um, and so I encourage you to do that. So if you want to, uh, as a couple, if you want another outline, they're in the foyer, as are some maps. And so um, just wanted to keep you up to date on that. We're going to read the passage out of uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 7 through 20. And we're going to ask God to teach us. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, continuing toward Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman, and it will come about when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake, and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Let's pray. Lord, I would ask this morning that you would incarnate truth, that your spirit would place us in this text. We could not only see Abram and learn from his life, but Lord, we'd see us from the inside out as we really are. Lord, you'd instruct us, you'd change us. Lord, you'd help us to see our life from a divine perspective, not simply a horizontal one. Might these words that come out of my mouth be yours, and might your word just go forth in power change and to instruct so that all things this morning you'd receive the praise in Jesus name amen obviously football season's upon us and I'm not a Viking fan and whenever we play the 
play the Vikings, I always would hope it wouldn't come down to a field goal because Blair Walsh is a great field goal kicker. He's reliable. That's what every team would want, a reliable field goal kicker. But some of you aren't remembering all the kicks he's made right now. If you follow the Vikings, you're thinking the one he missed in the playoffs last year. You see, sometimes the reliable fail. And we tend to remember those failures. I remember one. I remember being in basketball in high school, and, and uh, I was a rebounder. I scored from inside a lot. And I remember a particular situation where the opponent was shooting a free throw, ripped down the rebound, powered back up, and scored. An exciting time, except everybody was going the other way in the court. And I'd scored in the wrong basket. Sometimes the reliable fail. And I don't forget that to this day. Those are kind of funny and those aren't too life-changing. But my journals over the years are filled with names of faithful followers of Jesus who compromised their integrity and failed. Heartbroken as I watch brothers and sisters in Christ who've been faithful to follow Jesus for years. The enemy got a foothold. As I penned in my journal, and I unfortunately can go back too many times and read about what happened. You see, sometimes the faithful fail. And we don't help ourselves because we're quick to put people on a pedestal, aren't we? We like to draw up this uh, scenario where this person is, 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 is a faithful follower of God, and, 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 but they're up here. And we don't do ourselves or them any favors when we do that. Because there's two reasons we should avoid putting people on pedestals. First of all, we set ourselves up for disillusionment because we'll inevitably see flaws in our heroes. In our kids, we know it's true. There's going to come a time, I realize as dad, where I'm not the cool guy I was. All of a sudden, they see flaws. And we can become disillusioned when we do that. Second reason, pedestals come with expectations no mere human can meet. You see, we don't do the people. We admire any favors by placing unrealistic burdens on their shoulders. It's true for, day, for today as well as for Bible heroes, especially as we look this morning at Abram. Now, it's important we understand background. We talked about last week. It portray Abram as a hero, really. While complete obedience came gradually to him, I think it's important we recognize his faith. Having heard from God, he abandoned his lifelong home, denied his culture, disconnected from most of family, left his friends, sacrificed real estate, threw away the future he'd planned for. Mid-70s, left it all behind to go to who knows where. Got to admire a faith like that. He abandoned the settled, the familiar life of a city dweller to become a nomad, both physically and spiritually. And with eyes set on God, he said, in effect, I'm going to trust you. And he followed. We admire that. I mean, that's, that's pretty good faith. I look at that type of commitment and that kind of trust, and I go, yeah, that's the kind of trust I want to have. Abram's left a thriving city of Ur. He's followed the banks of Euphrates River northwest and settled for a time in Haran. Daddy died there. After his dad died, he followed a busy trade route west and then south to a mountain city of Shechem, which was kind of like a bustling trade town. Abram camped beside what's called the Oak of Morah, verse 6. It could also be translated a tree of teaching. 
which it often was. Most likely it served as some kind of prominent landmark. And historical records indicate that the Canaanites had shrines and groves of oak trees. And so it's pretty possible that Mora could have been a cult center type thing where uh, um, cultic teachings were being taught in this grove of trees. As Abram camped next to this location, God appeared to him again in verse 7. He reaffirmed this great relationship and this great redemptive plan. And he said, trust in me, Abram. Trust in me. I got my hand on your life. Your seed will form a mighty nation. Don't forget it. Well, Abram, we see in verse 8, responded by building an altar and then offering an animal sacrifice of thanksgiving. And even after he continued his journey, Canaanites who gathered at this tree of teaching would immediately notice this monument, which stood as a monument to this man's obedience. Well, Abram continued south, we read, up in elevation to a place we now know as Jerusalem. It was obviously one of the most significant places to the nation of Israel. There he builds another altar, expressed Abram's Abram's devotion. History shows us that the sites where Abram constructed altars to God later became major centers of Hebrew worship. However, after erecting a second altar, Abram continued south to Negev region, which means dry and parched. And while in this region, Abram faced his first test when a severe famine swept the land. So you got this guy. He's trusted God to do an incredibly difficult thing. Turn his back on all those things. Cut ties. Trust God to a land. He had no idea where he's going. And as he goes, we see him worship. Not once, but twice. He's built two altars. And he's worshipped God, Yahweh. We look at him and say, That's the kind of life I want to have. This faithful follower. Well, be careful about putting him on a pedestal. Let's look what happens. Verse 10. There was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. The word famine in this case simply means hungry. This famine could have been caused by drought, diseased crops, could have been a plague of locusts, simply just failed harvest. Now we know that this area has a delicate, balanced ecology. We know that. And this was probably new terrain to Abraham, so he wasn't maybe quite known that there are times that food could be scarce. He probably was unknown that. It's interesting, I found that modern archaeologists and geologists have found evidence of a massive 300-year cycle of drought. During the end of the third millennium and the beginning of the second millennium, one of the time periods to which Abram is dated. I thought this was kind of interesting. For Abraham, this season of hunger represented a major test. And this test, you could say this famine, carried a sobering message from the Lord. In all your praying, Abraham, and in all your altar building, let me reveal the depth of your faith. That's what tests do, don't they? This test will reveal much about how Abram struggled with trust and the circumstances were against him. Now, while God didn't cause the famine, he certainly used it as an instrument in the development of Abram's faith. You and I can expect divine tests in our journey, more than one. But how we respond is crucial. 
I came across this by a man named Jim Warren. I appreciate his words. His statement says this, When hard times come, we always have two choices. We can be a student or we can be a victim. Now think about those words for a moment. A victim says, why did this happen to me? A student says, what can I learn from this? A victim complains he's being treated unfairly. A student thanks God he's not being treated as he deserves. A victim tries to get even with those who've hurt him. A student student seeks to serve those, even in the midst of his difficulty. A victim believes the game of life is stacked against him, where a student believes God is at work even in the worst situations. You see, in every circumstance, in every divine test, we have an opportunity to choose how we'll respond. Sometimes we will foolishly make a wrong choice, and unfortunately we'll pay a heavy price most of the time. And often we won't learn the right lessons until we can look back and see how God worked, even in the midst of foolish decisions we made when the divine test came our way. You see, something like this happened to Abraham. We told in this text he reacts when a sudden famine comes, hits the promised land, and faced with this crisis, he makes a series of bad choices that jeopardize everything he's gained up to this point. You see, God doesn't allow circumstances to find out what we'll do. He already knows us better than we know ourselves. Make no mistake, He uses tests to reveal us to ourselves. From the inside out, these tests come to show us what's going on in the inside. And so a divine test comes to Abram. Now we look at this and think, well, what's the divine test? Sure, it was a famine. My question is, why did he go to Egypt? That was almost an an instinct, is is to run. This is a a severe thing going on. I'm just going to join in with the caravan wherever they're going. I don't care. Hopefully there's food on the other end of it. We might think, well, I might do the same thing, and that might be the problem. (laughs) Let's track this even more, because we see a human reaction. You see, he first fails a test when he rushes to Egypt instead of seeking God's counsel. You see, at one time he built altars, sought God, but when this test comes, we read no prayers. We don't read, he stopped and sought God. We see no more altars. And rather than seeking God's instruction, he found a, made a beeline for where car, caravan of merchants said he could find food in abundance. And so there he went. He hopped in the caravan. I appreciate these words from F.B. Meyer as he describes the literary and symbolic meaning of Egypt in biblical literature. He says, in the figurative language of Scripture, Egypt stands for an alliance with the world. Abraham acted simply on his own judgment. He looked at his difficulties and became paralyzed with fear. He grasped at the first means of deliverance that suggested itself, much as a drowning man will catch at a straw. And thus, without taking counsel of his heavenly protector, Abram went down to Egypt. And what a fatal mistake that was. But how many still make it? You and I are true children of God, and others may be true children of God, and yet in a moment of panic, we adopt methods of delivering them ourselves, to say the least, that are questionable. Sowing the seeds of sorrow and disaster 
to save ourselves and to save themselves from minor embarrassment. How much better would it have been for Abraham to have thrown the responsibility back on God and said, God, you led me here to Canaan. Please provide. Provide for me. You brought me here, obviously for a purpose. You must bear the responsibility then. This whole weight of providing for me and my family, I trust you. And I'll stay till clearly you tell me to leave. How much better it would have been for that. But we don't read that. Now if we look at verse 11, let's follow this narrative even further. It came about when he came near Egypt. Abram had time to think about this, by the way. As he's going down, he's thinking, okay, I'm going to foreign land. I'm coming to this land. I'm a stranger already. I'm a threat. So he needs to think this through a little bit, and he has been. He says to Sarah, his wife, he said, Now, honey, you're gorgeous. You're beautiful. And I'm not the only one who's going to notice it. We're going to get down to Egypt. They're going to see your beauty. And as your husband, they're going to take me out so they can have you. That's, that's his thinking, simply put. Now, what Abram says in verse 11 and 12 is true. His wife is beautiful. And it's true, as a foreigner, his life is in danger. His life's vulnerable. But his default response, it seems, to this test is not to trust, but to lie. It's bad enough he lies, he asks his wife to do the same thing. It made me ask myself, what's my default response when the tests come? What are yours? When a divine test comes, what's your default response? For some, it's flee, escape, get away from the test as soon as possible. Others, it's just say, simply to save face. Maybe in pride, we want to admit that Well, we're not really going through a test or that's somebody else's fault and certainly not mine. What's your default response? Abram's here is to lie. It was his desire to escape at all costs. And so he involves Sarah into this. And what comes about is a moral mess. Now as I read this text, I think it's important. In case you're looking at Abram right now and say, I would never do that. I'm beyond that, and I get it, he's a hero of the faith, but boy, what a loser. I mean, there's no way I would go there. In case you're feeling superior right now, maybe thinking you never lie the way Abram did, let me offer this warning. If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, 1 Corinthians 10, 12-13. In this week, one of the things that kind of kept coming in my mind is as God's people, we need a heavy dose of humility. You might not have said it, but maybe you thought it. I could never fall like that. I would never sin like that. I've matured beyond that point. If that's your thought, you're believing a lie. We'd never put ourselves with Abram in that type of faith, but we look at this hero and he fell. And we see it vividly. He lied. Now notice his focus. This is really instructive to me. I had to underline it in my Bible. Came about when the Egyptians see you. They're going to say, this is his wife, and they will kill me. 
but they'll let you live. Please say that you are my sister so that it will go well with me because of you that I may live on account of you. Do you see this self-centered focus? Abram says, this is, about, this is about me. I'm saving my goose. And could you please lie because I want to live. They'll attack me. Hey, honey, lie because, well, it's about me. You didn't say it that way, but you see it in the words, don't you? Now, technically, Abram's lie contained a half-truth. According to Genesis 20, 12, Sarai was indeed Abram's half-sister. They were born of the same father. They had different mothers. Interesting enough, the word that they use in Genesis 20, 12 could also mean adopted. We're not sure. Sarah could have been adopted. But we don't know. But in a sense, technically in his mind, he may have been thinking, well, it might not be entirely true. But there's an element of truth there. Good enough. But you know, a half lie is a full lie. It wasn't true. And Sarah is not only asked to engage in deception, but Abram, by this deception, puts his wife in a vulnerable situation. And she's eventually forced into cohabitating with another man other than her husband. And by claiming to be Sarah's brother, Abram hoped to leverage what he believed was a local custom to his advantage. He might indeed be killed as a husband. But ancient laws made him her guardian as her brother. In other words, as guardian as a brother, he'd be looked upon differently than if he was a husband. And so we're not surprised when Pharaoh says, hey, here's a bunch of gifts. You're her brother. You're the guardian. And so we're going to give you these type of things, and basically in exchange, you're going to give us your sister. Because you're responsible for him, and so it's kind of almost a bribe, if you really get right down to it. And so he tries to take advantage of what probably was the cultural norm. But not, only, not long after he arrives, we see a moral mess. Verse 15 and 16, Pharaoh's officials saw her, praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to her house. She must have been a real looker, by the way. I mean, Abram knows, the people know, and then the king's people say, it's a beautiful girl over here. She's new in town. And so they come, and this is where we begin to see this begin to unravel. Verse 16, therefore he treated Abram well. Uh, He believes it's a brother. Treated him well for her sake, and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys, male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Tries to buy him off in that sense. And it's really kind of a sense of a hopeless political trap. I gotta believe Abram's conscience was working overtime. Can you imagine his anxiety? I mean, try to put yourself, husbands, in his shoes. Someone else is wooing your wife night after night, a powerful man. Fortunately, history tells us that ancient marriage rituals then including a waited period to ensure the bride was not pregnant. So potentially Sarah was in the palace, but no one had access to her for sexual contact. We don't know that. At least I'm sure that's what Abram hoped in that case. So as you look at this situation, it's amazing that Abraham would put Sarah in this situation. Maybe he didn't think it would come that way, but the the snowball effect of one lie became another, and it just began to come out of control, and we get this moral mess. But we sang a song just a minute ago, Lord, come to my rescue, and Abram, I hope he built a gazillion altars after this one. We're going to see, because God does come to his rescue. By way of striking Pharaoh with some plagues. 
Now the Lord struck Pharaoh in the house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. And not only him, his servants, there was nobody coming to work on Monday morning in Pharaoh's house. Everybody was sick. The plague could have been a disease. We don't know. But everybody was struck. And somehow, he connects these plagues or these diseases with Abraham and Sarah. One of the reasons probably is everybody around his palace was sick but Sarah. Probably like, oh, wait wait a minute here. How come she's the only one not sick? Ah, it might begin to sink in. This might have something to do with him and her brother. You know. And we don't know exactly. God might have revealed it to him. God might have said, Pharaoh, here's what's going on. We, we don't read that. We'd have to be filling in the blanks. But somehow he discovered the truth that Sarai already had a husband. And when he discovers this, he wants to get rid of them really, really quickly, understandably. It's interesting. We don't read Sarah saying anything in this text, but she's the pivotal person. I mean, think about it for a minute. Abram's prospers because of Sarah, but Pharaoh suffers because of her. She's a pivotal piece of this narrative, and she doesn't say a word. It's interesting how she plays out in this situation. The ultimate result is a pretty sad conclusion. Verse 18, Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so I took her as my wife? In a sense, asks him three questions. Abraham doesn't answer any of them. Because he's guilty. What do you say? I mean, he lied. And he got caught in it. I can't help but wonder what kind of opinion Pharaoh had of Abram's God at that point. If Pharaoh didn't look at Abram and say, okay, you're a follower of Yahweh, what kind of God is he that would allow this type of behavior? I wonder the same about today. How many people in our world have yet to embrace the God of Scripture because God's people live in the shadows of ethical and moral failure? How many people have said, yeah, I hear you talking about Jesus, but man, I'm looking at your life and it's telling me something totally different. It's what Pharaoh's seeing. And that's what a watching world sees today when we compromise our integrity. Now Pharaoh could have stripped Abram of all his possessions, could have tossed him in a pit, but he didn't. I believe it's because he'd had enough of God's displeasure. He just wanted to get these guys out of here. I want to get rid of these diseases. I want my servants back. Get out of here. Matter of fact, he lets them take everything he'd already given them. You know, wow. I mean, Abram got off to talk about lucky, or blessed, we should say. And by the way, among the relatives and servants that lead, Hagar is one of them. We're going to get to her later. I was reminded that, you know what, the easy way of deception ends up being hard road of humiliation. Jesus said, do not cast your pearls to swine or they'll be trampled. I.e., don't cast spiritual things to an unsaved world or they'll trample it. And that's kind of, we see it played out right here. And before going on, let me make an important point. We shouldn't be surprised if at times deceptive plans seem to work at first. Maybe they seem to prosper. After all, sin is fun initially. If sin weren't fun, or at least appealing to our flesh, no one would ever sin. 
We're told in Scripture, no pleasure of sin. The pleasure of sin is for a short time, Hebrews 11.25. Every alcoholic or drug addict knows what I'm talking about. You drink because it numbs the pain or because it decreases stress or because it makes you forget your problems or because it makes you feel happy for a while, but you pay dearly later. And as I add, so do others. Be assured there's no benefits from disobedience. None. Obviously, Abram flunked his test. He'd faltered in his faith, and his first real test earned him an F. No F plus, just an F. But God, thank God in his mercy, tells us this wasn't the end of the story. You know, I, I sometimes tempted to read that God could say here, man, I made a mistake in picking this guy. I mean, the first test that comes his way, look what I find him. Lying, cheating. I think I'm going to go with another guy. Because this Abram certainly doesn't have it together. I'm going to look elsewhere. We don't read that, do we? No, God in his mercy rescued Abram from Pharaoh's wrath and even used the incident to help in long-term resources. While this failure certainly displeased God, it didn't shake God's commitment to Abram. It merely gave God an opportunity to teach Abram so as to cultivate a trust that would be solid in the journey ahead. God allowed natural consequences rather than burying him in condemnation and shame. He used this situation as a tool. Abram's humiliation led him back to the promised land where he should have been all along. It's where God called him to. He didn't belong in Egypt. Unfortunately, he went back a humiliated man. He probably would agree with the psalmist who said in Psalm 119.71, it was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your decrees. I wonder if you can say that in your divine test as you look back and say, it was good for me to go through that. It humbled me, and I learned more about what God wanted. I.e., you were a student, not a victim. I want to wrap this up with some practical lessons. Years ago, there was a pastor I admired greatly. I sat under his teaching. He was a great teacher. One of the best Bible teachers I've ever heard. He helped me grow a lot. I spent time with him one-on-one, asking him about certain things he was teaching. And, and uh, man, he was a knowledgeable guy. I looked up to him. He had an emotional affair. That was bad enough. But when you look at somebody, you're like, well, I want to see how he responds. Certainly this will humble him. Certainly, certainly he's going to come before the elders of the church and submit himself to whatever discipline or whatever steps of restoration they'll give him. Certainly he would do that. After all, he teaches the Bible. He knows the Bible. I'm sure he's going to respond biblically in this way. Unfortunately, I was deceived. He didn't. With great pride and arrogance and an unrepentant spirit, it began to surface, and he couldn't confess it. He wouldn't confess it. And unfortunately, it ended in a tragic consequences. I learned a lesson that day and days since then. And these are practical lessons and they, they're going to be tempted to say, fill in the blanks and leave them there. Don't do that. If this text tells us anything, the first thing it says, all of us will face a famine. 
we're all going to face a divine test. And some are going to be very severe. It'll knock the feet out right from under you. You're going to find yourself with nowhere else to look but up. And by the way, it's not a bad place to be if it causes you to do that. It could be divorce, it could be death, it could be bankruptcy, it could be sickness, I don't know. Other tests seem manageable. But either way, these experiences prompt a crisis of faith. And they challenge us to ask and answer, who do I really trust? That's what they cause us to ask. Who do I really trust in this situation? Prepare now for those tests by trusting God now. Trust Him in the little things. Trust Him in the big things. Trust Him now. So when the tests come, you will have had a lifestyle. You will have money in the bank of times you've trusted God and seen His faithfulness. All of us are going to face a famine. And another lesson I learned is all of our attempted escapes contain lies of some kind or another. When we seek to escape Avoid facing the crisis of faith, these divine tests. We escape through lies we tell ourselves. For example, we may face a test and say, I can handle this without anybody's help. I don't need anybody. I can do this without God. I can do this without anybody. And we convince ourselves with enough ingenuity, with enough guts, with enough luck, we can survive this famine. And we often spend our lives escaping tests rather than walking through in the power of God. We justify, we rationalize, we excuse, and we, we minimize our deeds. And our lying becomes easier and easier and easier. Don't live by the flesh, because if you do, you'll seek to escape. Live by the Spirit, that'll lead you to surrender. That will lead you to trust. Number three, all, our, all of us struggle with weaknesses. That means you. We all carry imperfections. We all carry flaws. And these weaknesses can cause us to make unwise choices as well as sinful, selfish choices. And more religion is not the answer. All spiritual activity either. It can be Bible studies, small groups, all those things, but none of them can protect you from foolish decisions or the lies you tell yourself. You see, we're weak and we need supernatural help. That's what we need. We need the power of God in our lives. When we are weak, the Bible says He is strong. We're all weak. If Abram could fall so soon after building two altars, believe me, we can stumble quickly too. You and I are all one poor decision away from serious consequences. You ever realize that? How desperately we need our God. That's why the Bible says walk by the Spirit. It's a step-by-step -step following of the Holy Spirit. We all struggle with our weaknesses. And I would add here, wiser the person who has somebody a phone call away to say, right now, I am in a bad situation. I need to get out. I need you. Wise are you when you surround yourself with brothers and sisters in Christ who love you too much to watch you sink. Exposed are you if you don't have that. You're in a dangerous place. And number four, all compromises affect others. There is no such thing as a victimless sin, including sins kept that are private. You never sin alone. You see, people around you trust you. They watch your life. And they lose 
Even though you may be unaware of it, when you sin, they lose. So reach out to someone today to get help, to get counsel, get availability if you find yourself like Abram flunking a divine test this morning. Learn from Abram. When the test comes, and trust God. And if you find yourself right now, and as you sit here right now going, man, I, I relate way too well to Abram. I failed. It could be ethically, it could be morally, it could be compromised. Your life right now is a series of lies you've used to cover up. If that's where you're at, you need to see somebody today. You need to contact. I'll, I'll be, I'm available. Our elders are available up front. Grab a brother, grab a sister, take them aside and said, right now I need prayer. And I need you to help me walk through this. They won't reject you. They, they won't look at you and call you stupid. We're going to walk with each other through these times. And we need to. But don't do the cowardly thing and leave. That, do the thing that's hard, the right thing. And God will walk you through this and you can learn from this test and become a student. God will use you in the days and weeks and months ahead because you took a courageous step of responding to him and what his spirit's saying to you this morning. We better pray. Let's do that. Lord, there's many times, and this is one of them where I, I, I'm pretty uncomfortable standing up on a platform. I feel like I should be more in the middle of this sanctuary in the middle of this group of my brothers and sisters. We don't like to admit we're weak. We don't like to admit failure. We're honest about that, God. We don't, we don't like to be vulnerable. But in some of the cases, Lord, this morning I believe that some here are in a place they need to take a courageous step. One of repentance, surrender, and accountability. For them, I pray this morning, Lord, that this would be the first step towards freedom. That they'd be honest with you, honest with themselves, and respond to the lessons we've learned from Abram this morning. And Lord, maybe there's some this morning who sit here Pride's welled up and they don't see themselves as ever being vulnerable to any type of situation like this. Lord, humble them before it's too late. Keep all of us, God, surrendered, dependent upon you, trusting you, trusting you in the little things today and tomorrow. And Lord, when those divine tests come, we'll continue to trust you even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, we will praise you. Even when the night seems dark, we will praise you. Even when all seems lost, we'll praise you. We'll build an altar to you, our God, and we'll trust you. And We know that's only possible by the work of your Spirit in our life. Please, continue to strengthen us according to your power and might so you'd be pleased and you'd be glorified. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray.
Amen.